Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 5 of the Babble Box. My name's Cody, your host. Today's day is July 17th of 2021. I'm recording this on a Saturday this week because I have been a little bit on the busy side lately. This week has been uh, all sorts of busyness. I am busy with work right now. This week was the launch of one of our local festivals, so my work has been exceptionally pretty busy with uh, all the tourist attractions coming up and lots of carnival rides, stuff like that that have been going on lately. Um, so I had to kind of, I had to kind of make time to be here. So it was a little bit hard, but we're here. We're we're getting into it today. Um, hope you guys are doing fantastic as always. Um, we have a we have a few news items that I kind of wanted to to cover today. We're doing things a little bit differently, kind of testing a bit of a uh, a different format. Would you call it? Um, I am doing this solo yet again today. Hopefully next week I am thinking about having a guest on, the lovely Justin that we've had before. So I will be hopefully having him on. That'll be exciting. Um, but yeah, let's get right into it. Before we get into the news items, I just wanted to make a quick little interjection. Um, I just finished making our email address for the Babble Box. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, ideas, or maybe any other just aside notes that you wanted to bring to my attention, um, you can email any of these things to info.thebabblebox at gmail.com. That's I-N-F-O dot T-H-E-B-A-B-B-L-E-B-O-X at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So the first thing I wanted to talk about today was... um, a recent copy of Super Mario 64 for the NES that sold for, get this, $1.56 million. I could only dream of having that kind of money in general, let alone spending it on a like a video game like that. Like, holy crap, I get guilty when I spend like $30. I get guilty when I spend $5. Like, I'll go to Steam and buy some like game and then I'll refund it like, before I have my two-hour playtime and get the money back because I'm like, I shouldn't have spent that money, but I wanted to try this game anyway. But yeah, it sold for $1.56 million, which is nuts. Um, the, it was apparently like a, a mint condition. like It had never been like played and it, like perfectly sealed, never opened. It was like a first edition copy of the game. Um, and it, it was... Uh, like rated by uh, appraisers and it received like pretty much the highest rating you could possibly get with that kind of stuff which is like a, i think i called it a 9.8 a plus plus or something like that i forget how many pluses are at the end of it but that's essentially what it was um and that's on a scale of 10 i believe and 10 is like the most perfect you can get with that but apparently 10s are very like rare and what what they refer to as anomalous due to um, manufacturing conditions and stuff like that. Apparently, to receive a perfect ten, like the 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 game or cartridge or disc, or whatever you were calling it, has to be made like perfectly, like no scratches during manufacturing. Everything is like perfect, mm-hmm. which is apparently incredibly hard to achieve, especially for like NES stuff. Because if you think about it, how many times did you have to blow into the butt of a of an N sixty four cartridge or an NES cartridge just to get it to work? even though it's technically not supposed to work, even like it's supposed to be horrible for the cartridge. But, you know, think about how much those things didn't work in general at all anyways. Um, but yeah, so it received like the highest rating they could possibly give it. Um, 
before this, apparently the like most expensive or rarest copy that sold for um, the largest amount of money used to be uh, uh, it was like a copy of I believe it was a Legend of Zelda game, and it was about like a little over eight hundred thousand dollars. Even that's nuts. So like thinking about how like this game, this copy of Mario sixty four, Super Mario sixty four, sold for almost double that amount is nuts that's crazy like i go on binges and i i I do online shopping all the time like jeffrey bezos could have my money as as he normally does and i I do shopping sprees every now and then every once in a while like i'll just get into like a rut of like spending money and i really shouldn't and it's really not good for me or my bank account or my mental health and what have you and like to spend that much money, I don't even care if I was a billionaire. If I was a billionaire, holy crap. Like I have some friends who are very into like collectibles and they spend quite a bit of money on these kinds of things, um, which is nuts. And they spend quite a bit of money on like collecting items and they they spend like on figures, on, on copies of games that have never been opened and stuff like that, like this. But to spend one and like one point five million dollars is nuts. At that point, like I'd rather just save my money. Like I'll buy it on like something that I'm actually gonna use it for. Because you know for a fact that that coffee's just gonna sit in a. Uh, they're just gonna sit in uh, a thing. They're gonna sit in the same case. It's not gonna get open. It's gonna sit there for more and more years. It'd be interesting if they came. Ooh, like a museum. Of just like rare edition copies of games. Somebody could curate that. Somebody could very easily walk up like to uh, somebody with like a sales pitch of like, hey, we have these people that are collectors. Um, we have the everybody uh, like we could pool our stuff together. Like they'll be protected. Like I'm sure you could probably pull out like an insurance on them or something like that. I just make a museum out of it. Like, like gamers heaven. And just like going to see these things and you can see them under like mint conditions and seeing like how how these things look because it's not every day that you stumble across like a copy like this where it's 100% like in good condition like most 64 games you find now have been touched they've been mangled they've been played the label may have been peeled off or like it's got like a little bit of like sun bleaching on it or like it's very rare to see these kinds especially like older games for older consoles and stuff like that very rare to see them in good condition nowadays i I could think back to um my dad's one of my dad's favorite games was i think it's called king's quest um and he had a copy and i thought it was so cool um because i had grown up more with like the cd um uh, like the CD version of video games where they're they're burned onto compact discs or like DVD discs and that kind of stuff. Um, and I grew up during during that time period. There was a few like older cartridge games, like he had an Atari and stuff like that. And there were there were um, a few different games that were on floppy disks, like King's Quest was. And it's very interesting, just like how different the the styles of the game were, and like how how much less detail there was compared to the two even though it's like the next jump in technology like floppy disk to compact disk and doing it that way and uh 
But yeah, he had this game called King's Quest, and it was uh, all on floppy disks, and it had I think eight or nine floppies in the in the thing, and each one had like a particular part of the game and stuff like that. And it was a um, God, I have to think now. It was like a point and click like RPG kind of kind of game to it. I forget the timeline. I, I watched him play it one time. I was very young, but. He used to talk about that game all the time and how it was his favorite thing in the world. And he he spent a lot of time on that. There was also another one he used to have that was um, it called Police Quest or something like that. Or poli- something Police. And it was kind of like the same style, that kind of point and click, like walking through RPG, but like through the eyes of a policeman and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, like I could think back to the boxes of those, like the box art, like they came in these big boxes, like the size of like... Um, I would say probably bigger than, probably bigger than the size of like the, the office papers that you could pick up from like office max and stuff like that, or like Walmart, like the letter size paper about the same size and height, I would say about the same size, like length and width wise. Um, but it was like eight floppies, a huge manual. And like, I, and I'm pretty sure the manual was also probably a guide as well. Or it had like some some collectible stuff to it, but it was just like eight floppies, and it was a like manual, several like disclaimer stuff, and a couple like side notes, side pieces, stuff like that. It came with like a poster that he never opened, um, and he had several games like that. He had another one too, that was on floppies. I remember this one because I remember him playing it. He was really into aviation. Um, when I was growing up or like planes and he, he, he liked to learn about how they worked and he had a, uh, a game that was like Mike, it is similar to like the, it was like a new, newer Microsoft, um, flight simulator, um, that's made by Microsoft. And it's actually really cool. Cause it, it uses like, uh, uh, GPS and it uses like actual like satellite imaging as well as like ground imaging and stuff like that to create the world that you that fly in. It, it, it can, for the most part, kind of look somewhat realistic. Obviously, there's a level of, of ambiguity to that. Like, you can't individually, like, go and fly to a house and, like, specifically look at that house and be like, yeah, yeah, that's the house I grew up in. But you can kind of, like, see the area and stuff like that. Be, like, the same thing going on, like, Google Maps and, like, going on Google Earth and, like, going through the roads and stuff like that. Kind of like that same kind of thing. Um, but there used to be an old... I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it was, like flight school xs or something like that i don't remember but he loved that game too and like that box got worn out i'm pretty sure he still has them too i wonder if i can procure those um but yeah they were all in like eight inch floppy disks no no those are the big ones they were on the smaller flop like the compact floppy disks um and i remember I, i remember when i was growing up i stuck one in my computer um, it was my, my first computer that I got, it was a 2002 Dell ran on windows XP. Um, it had like a floppy disk. It had CD trays at two of them, I believe, which was awesome. Um, a couple of USB ports, stuff like that. It wasn't too, wasn't too, uh, advanced. Um, but I remember sticking a floppy disk in there one time for, I think it just had some random files on it. Um, and it had uh just like I, I pulled a floppy out and like the entire thing erased itself. And I was like, Oops. Uh sorry. 
I hope you had nothing valuable in there, Dad, because it's gone. I like I I who I can't begin to to imagine like the the kind of stuff that like might have been on there, although a very small and very limited storage. So I just looked it up, and the jump in technology from floppy disks to CDs was so huge. The floppy disk went from eight hundred like limit of 800 kilobytes at like the minimum for like the three and a half inch floppy disks to when we, when we started switching to compact disks could hold up to an upwards of 700 megabytes, which is an order of magnitude larger than its predecessor, which is nuts. I remember growing up, um, I had, I had two, we had two consoles, two main consoles in our house, other than like a computer, but we had two main consoles in our house. The first was a PlayStation 2. The second one was the original Xbox, like that we're talking like the brick. I actually still have the brick and it's kind of right next to me right now. Um, and I remember the memory cards. Um, they, for the PlayStation 2, the memory cards went into the actual console and they could only hold up to eight megabytes um, until they eventually made more that could hold up to larger file sizes. But eight megabytes was the largest size. Like I remember having to go in and deleting those old save files that didn't matter to me anymore to make room for new save files or bigger save files. And it was memory management was awful. And I had two of those. I had like a red and a blue one. And then I also had one that had less storage but it was from the playstation one and you could only use it for playstation one games which i had several of which was which was amazing um and i remember having to have a separate memory card for that and that can only go in the first slot and it wouldn't work in the in the second slot because there were two my favorite thing though and uh on the original xbox um at least for i'm pretty sure it's probably for all controllers maybe not the big beefy first edition ones but as the the um as the controllers get a little more finessed, I will say. Um, I remember the memory cards, instead of going in the console itself, you had a hard drive in the console, which was something that the Xbox had over the PlayStation 2. Um, along with the hard drive, you also had a, um, like, you had, like, very similar memory card stuff like that, but they connected into the controllers, which was cool. And that was kind of remarkable um because i remember my friend uh once upon a time with he had an xbox as well and we had the same game and what we wanted to do was like bring over my character to his house or vice versa so all we had to do is bring our controllers and bring our memory card and the boom you have the save file on there which like allowed for so much more portability and like a lot better ease of access. I remember my dad got pissed at me one time um, with those memory cards. We had one that had like a, um, we had two of them. We had a, a chunky one that was, it looked, it looked a little more sleek um, and you could definitely tell it was a newer version of the memory cards, but I had one, I think it was a mad cats memory card. Um, and the memory card was uh, like thick at the base where I had to plug into the controller and then it kind of thinned out 
And I remember the 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 the, the tip of it, like the last like quarter of the memory card, had like a weird texture on it, and had some bumps on it. When I was a kid and I went through my teething phase, I remember chewing on that memory card so much. Like if I, I could probably find it somewhere. But on that memory card, there are grooves that are just left in the memory card from when I was little. And I would just like chew on it or like put it in my mouth and like just just crunch on that so hard, um, which is not a good thing uh, by any means. And I, I was a very teethy child. I'd put literally anything and everything in my mouth, which is uh, probably what led to me bring how I am today. Um, but <laughs> But I remember, yeah, just like putting that in my mouth, chewing on it. I remember my dad getting mad at me. Like and I did it several times as a kid and, uh, it still worked. Thankfully, like there was one time where I had like the entire thing in my mouth and, um, it was like, just like soaked in spit and dad pulled it out of my mouth and it, he was convinced it wouldn't work. And we let it dry. Like the next day we tried it and it worked out perfectly and everything was fair. Surprisingly, nothing got corrupted. Um, which is very surprising considering how like, how easily everything could just go to shit with older technology now like how how like fragile how volatile i was gonna say fragile is not the right word but like how volatile some of like the memory saving stuff could be because like even with discs and stuff like that if you bumped it uh at the wrong time when it was like writing save space or stuff like that like you could just screw up the whole the whole thing um which is yeah just a nightmare um I remember, oh, I have such fond memories of, like, childhood video games and stuff like that. Oh, my God. Like, talking about the original Xbox and the PlayStation 2, I remember, um, I still have, a, I still have a couple of the games, but I still have a, an old version of, um, Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance, and there was another one, it was, uh, Gauntlet Dark Legacy, those two were probably like my most remembered childhood video games that I could ever think of. Um, I remember, uh, God, Baldur's Gate. They just came up with a new one. Um, it was called Baldur's Gate, or no, it wasn't. It wasn't Baldur's Gate. It was called Dark Alliance, and it just came out on Steam recently. Um, and it was, uh, in my opinion, it was a, it was a, it was, it's an okay game. Um, I played a little bit of it. I ended up getting a refund for it on Steam because it didn't live up to what I was hoping it would be, unfortunately. Um, but it was okay. It definitely didn't really do what I thought it would be. Um, but it was called the Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. There was two of them. Um, I remember for the, the, the first one came out for both the PlayStation and the Xbox. The second one came out for the, the Xbox, the original Xbox. Um, and... Uh, it, it takes place in the D and D world, um, and I, oh, it starts off like you're going to um, you're going to Baldur's Gate to find something or someone. You're on your way to a place called Elfsong Tavern, um, which is such a cool place in lore. Like it's so nice, and they they I they definitely didn't do it justice with like how it looked in the video game um but of course like they were limited to size and stuff like that you had like maximum 10 npcs in the tavern and the tavern wasn't very big to begin with so it just kind of was a little disappointing um 
But Elfsong Tavern, you're on your way to Baldur's Gate to go to Elfsong Tavern to like seek information on something. And while you're there, you like you get mugged by a member of the Thieves Guild or something like that. They take all your shit, and then you're basically like they drag you to the tavern and just kind of like leave you there, and then you just go on doing the business, and like the game starts from there on out. Um, but. I like I have such fond memories of like watching my dad play that game and I would play that game and like he would get so upset with me whenever we would play together because I would take things that were his and he would take things that were mine and it was just a frustrating experience for the both of us. Um, he would always play as either the uh, sorceress or the hunter. Um, he was more keen on the hunter in general, but he always got upset with it because he always ran out of arrows, I remember. Until he got one of the skills that gave him just like infinite arrows, which were amazing. Um, but my favorite was always the sorceress because you know you're a child and magic, and it just blows your mind. And like the 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 girl starts off with a spell; it's called Burning Hands, and essentially it just like sprays fire everywhere. And uh, that was my favorite thing. I remember just like <laughs> I would I would start spamming the ability like you just hold down the B button. Or the circle button, depending on what console you were on. And it, you could just, like, sp- it, it locks your character into place. And, of course, it becomes, like, directional. So you could, like, aim with the other joystick. And I would just, like, hold down the button and just, like, go in circles and, like, make a, a flame spiral. And it was a fun time. Um, and then not too long after, you would get, like, magic missile and that kind of stuff, too. Um, the magic in the first one was not nearly as developed. The second one, the Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance 2 was like the magic in that one was so much better um they had like five or six playable champions um my favorite of those two uh were the cleric and they that my i had three three that i would usually pick from there was the barbarian there was the cleric and then there was the necromancer those are my three favorites um the barbarian basically like imagine conan um just slightly more pissed off um and he always he starts off with like a bastard sword and he just goes swinging around beating up stuff and like yeah the uh cleric was my second pick usually um she was a cleric of i forget what church in Baldur's gate um but her stuff was pretty cool she had i need to find the game again and play it uh so many good memories but she had several spells that were like more focused on like holiness and like she had a couple defensive stuff. Um, I remember she had like a cure spell that she could like relieve herself of like any ailments, stuff like that, like heal herself slightly. My favorite spell of hers though, was called the flame wall. I think it was called, um, or holy wall basically like from the sky or from the, it's a top, it's an isometric game. So like from the above you, um, comes like down this just like pillar of fire and it hits the floor and like spreads out a little bit like enough like probably three units wide i would say like three characters wide and it like hit so hard and like left a little bit of burning on them too and if it was a an undead creature um they would take like burning damage for a longer period of time and it was just a cool spell and there were so many ways you could cheese care like cheese enemies too and just get rid of them um there used to be like I don't remember what the creature was called, but it was in like the sewers of the Thieves Guild, I think. And you could use this spell by standing behind a gate or like a fence. And you would stand behind this fence, use the spell, and the creature would be like at the other side of the fence below you. 
So you'd use the spell to come crashing down on top of them, and you could do that like several times until they get like sick and tired of your shit, and they would either walk away or find their way up the ramp to you and are like around the fence. Um, but my favorite character was the Necromancer. At level two, or like when you get your like first skill point, you start off with like a blood drain. So I think they were a vampire necromancer or something like that. But their first spell was blood drain. And you essentially like stole their life force and put it in your own, which was amazing. Like really cool. Um, and you had, um, as your like first skill point, I always got skeletons. So you could spawn a skeleton who would fight for you. And they hit pretty decent. They weren't like exceptional or anything. But the more you leveled up the skill, the more skeletons you could summon. I was at one point where I had three skeletons fighting for me while I was standing like up on top of a barrel or something where something couldn't get me. And they just dealt with it. And I was just like, this is, this is pretty. This is nice. This is great. Go forth, my minions. Um, I remember, though, it was really cool. I really liked that game because... It had more of like a class system with that. Like it had like a necromancer. It had a holy warrior or like a barbarian. And it was very interesting the way they, they developed these classes because they developed it. Like the first one you could pretty much like wear any armor, wield any weapon. So long as you had like the strength or like dexterity to wield that weapon or, or like to, to wear the armor. So there was definitely like class restrictions as far as that goes. Like how you develop your... your um, your your skills so like there's a dwarf there's a human and there was an elf the elf was the sorceress the human was the hunter the dwarf was, was like a battle warrior the human and the dwarf could carry the battle axe but the sorceress could not um because their strength was too low but if you upgraded the strength you could wield the battle axe or whatever the great sword or whatever um but with the second game certain classes could not wear certain items or use certain items um i think it still still goes into play where like if you develop your like strength enough you could wield like a two-handed sword with the exception of like two people i think um but it made it very interesting because um, when i play as a necromancer for example like i could not you cannot wear armor you are bare chested the entire time you could wear like a belt pants uh bracers uh gloves but you cannot wear like chest plates or jerkins or you cannot wear like any any gambeson or anything like no chest armor at all just bare chested the entire time which i was like go off um and then the other classes like i think there's a monk who couldn't wield any two-handed weapons um could only wear like armor up to a certain weight i think it was um and i don't remember it was they couldn't wear shoots shoots couldn't wear shoes or they couldn't wear um they couldn't wear bracers it was one of the two um there was also i think they were also restricted to either bare fisting that that's not the word i wanted to use um like bare-handed fighting stabs or like dual wielding swords which is cool um i remember there was a dwarf who had a crossbow you could only wield like daggers and crossbows barbarian you could pretty much do whatever you just can't use like daggers or stabs um 
but yeah, the second one had a lot more like development into it, and it definitely preyed on my my childish what my childish wonder of magic and like how cool magic was. Such good memories. Oh, and then don't even get me started on like Gauntlet Dark Legacy. That game was just like childhood galore, like arcade shooter. You got magic weapons, you have big bosses, like, oh, so much fun. Just, like, hack and slash through the entire thing. The remake of it that was made for um, PC, which I think also came out to consoles, it was just called Gauntlet. Um, Oh, God, when did that release? Like, 2017, 2018, I think? One of those? I have no idea. Within the last, like, four years... Um, it came out and it was, it was, it, it was okay. It definitely like, it kept to the, the theme of, you know, it's an isometric hack and slash dungeon crawler kind of deal. Um, it definitely kept to, uh, some of the gauntlet roots where it's a little unfair at times. The game in general kind of felt too easy for me, um, compared to the old games. Like the old games is just chuck you in and good luck. But this one was like. Yeah, like the first like 10 levels are pretty easy. This, then they get a little bit more harder. Um, it's definitely a lot more harder with other people, though. In, in, in solo play, it's so easy. Um, the biggest threat I would say that you can have is death himself. You can't kill death like you used to be able to in the old, um, in like Gauntlet Dark Legacy. You could like use a potion um, to get rid of death but this one like you have to just run away and you have to like dodge and weave around him and stuff like that um but it, it definitely it was it was a fun game i just it probably could have been better i don't know they did some rework to it recently where they like reworked the level system and stuff like that which was whatever but pretty good game i check them out they're, they're good stuff so another one i wanted to cover today um i saw i read an article yesterday um about the renaming of asian carp um and this uh, this was by a an article put up by the associated press and i did a little uh um i did a little uh diving into information as well um so asian carp is an invasive species here in the u.s um as you could imagine judging by the name uh, it was originally brought over from southern China or like southern Asia, um, and they've been that they've been seen as far north as like eastern Russia, um, and they they mostly inhabit like rivers and like lakes and stuff like that. They prefer like big bodies of water um, that are pretty clear um, and, and that they, like they don't have like they're pretty slow moving, so they they don't like like they don't like tepid water. Um, they don't usually stay in lakes too much, um, but they, they definitely live like big rivers that kind of move a little on the slow side, um, that are not like super, super, um, just gummed up with, with mud and disease and that kind of stuff. Um, so here in the U S Asian carp, uh, is an invasive species. That being said, um, the, there is a, a push to rename Asian carp as just invasive carp. Um, and in general, like within policymaking, uh, the Associated Press made a comment about this. This They want to make this sort of switch, this linguistic, this, this language change um, within like policymaking and just talking about invasive carp 
within like early August or hopefully by the end of the year. Um, as you can imagine, being an invasive species, uh, being invasive and not from around the U.S., uh, this kind of brings a negative connotation to the word Asian carp. Um, so the biggest reason why they're doing this is to eliminate, you know, derogatory or negative connotation with the word Asian. Um, they they want to make sure that it's not going to lead to like racist approaches or initiatives. Um, and they want to make sure that like, ultimately this doesn't become kind of what we saw with the politicizing of the COVID uh, virus with, you know, China virus or the, or that kind of stuff. Like, when you think about it, it can be harmless. Most people probably don't mean it to be racist or stuff like that. But there are plenty of people out there that, you know, they would say China virus with uh, plenty of malice thrown in there. Um, so, yeah, very, uh, very. It's interesting to see. It's interesting to see these kinds of like policy making, policy changes. Um, it's it's great to see not only like smaller communities or smaller like bodies kind of take action for some of the the terminology that we use nowadays that can have these negative connotations to it that can seek this negative attention that can be associated with a culture or with a race um and that kind of stuff like uh, although I would have probably not batted an eye. There's probably someone who definitely takes more of an offense to a negative connotation such as Asian carp. Um, I don't know. It, it seems like a very small step, but it is a small step. This is like a low-hanging fruit. It's a small step in the right direction. Um, but I did a little digging on invasive carp in general here in the U.S. So um, invasive carp, there is, there's specifically four species uh, or four kinds of carp that are here in the U.S. Um, uh, they're called the bighead carp, the silver carp, black carp, and grass carp. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I saw a grass carp, I was just like imagining like a fish, like a uh, uh, almost like a uh, uh, what's it called, magic carp, like flopping around on the gla- grass or something like that, um, which kind of brought a, a big old smile to my face. But uh, these are the main four. Uh, types of carp that are here in the u.s they were originally brought over during like the 60s and 70s mostly put into private like lakes and bodies of water to help combat uh several parasites and algae blooms that were in the area that they were released in the intention of them was to cull them after they were done doing their jobs but um there was some flooding that led to their inevitable escape so they were able to leave their main body of water and you know go up and down rivers and they've they've spread from east coast all the way to california and obviously like different populations kind of conglomerate within different areas like here in the midwest around the great lakes especially there are a lot more big head and black carp than there are black carp especially um but you know like grass carp is more of like on the west coast kind of thing uh whereas silver carp is just kind of little pockets here and there um Fun fact, invasive carp are in the same family as like goldfish and koi, which I thought was funny. So imagining like your goldfish just going around and like gulping up other things and being an invasive species. So don't flush your goldfish down the toilet, kids. Um, 
But no, uh, so invasive carp were brought over in the 60s and 70s um, with the intent of, of helping the wildlife kind of combat some of these problems they were seeing. And so they were pretty successful with that too. Um, nowadays, though, carp are uh, a bit of a threat to many fresh bodies of water. The Great Lakes especially, there's been a huge push to um, help fight with invasive species and trying to preserve the Great Lakes which is a huge natural resource for much of the world. Um, and it's just crazy to to see kind of the impacts that carp can bring to the, the ecosystem. They eat a lot of plants, they eat a lot of stuff. Um, they eat a lot of similar foods as other natural species in the area. Um, they have a lot of phytoplankton and zooplankton in the area. Um, but the interesting thing about carp is they're they reproduce like in crazy amounts and they can very easily overwhelm an ecosystem with the amount of carp that can be produced um i read in uh from the u.s fish and wildlife services like a female carp can lay over like i think it was almost two million eggs in like over a summer like from one cycle essentially which is nuts and obviously not all of those carp are going to survive, but if they keep up like this, it's going to be a, it's going to be a huge threat to many of the native species um, within the Great Lakes and within many of the freshwater rivers and stuff like that. Um, there have been many initiatives to help stop the spread of these, uh, as well as uh, informing people on like how to combat in general. Um, like invasive species and stuff like that. We saw a huge uh, push with this for zebra mussels, which made their way to the Great Lakes. Um, and kind of how that was, and kind of how the zebra mussels were brought into existence in the Great Lakes was kind of inevitable and stupid because it made its way into um, the Great Lakes via a ship through its ballast tank. So it was kind of just released off into the Great Lakes, which is, you know, there's not much you can really do about it at that point. Um, but it's definitely like the carp has really shown us that we need to push for preserving our natural environment and our natural resources and not letting invasive species kind of push out the existing ones already and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that this, this is definitely a step in the right direction and that there's more that we can take from this if we were just to take the low hanging fruit and go from there. I personally think it's great to see some of these companies, um, and even not even companies, but bodies of government or policymaking, kind of take a look at the terminology that we've used and the names that we've used for brands or products, and really taking a look at, you know, is this name, is this product, is this this logo steeped in racism or stereotypes uh or just like does it lead to negative thoughts or connotations towards these people's groups or individuals that you know they should not have that connotation connected with uh we've seen things like um uh eddie's pie which was really called eskimos pie we've seen um like mrs butterworth's kind of take a step back and think like is this a problem um Aunt Jemima was another one. Uncle Ben was another one. And we're just kind of seeing these companies kind of take a look and, you know, whether or not they, they actually deem it steeped in racism or not is obviously a, a whole different, like, scenario. 
whatever happens happens you know it, it's one of those things like not all cases of rebranding is going to happen not all cases are we going to end up renaming these things some things are just fine the way they are but especially for things like invasive carp and that name change that is kind of important in honesty for the sole reason that it does have that negative connotation it it may not seem racist on the surface but it definitely has that that negative impact when you think of asia or asian carp or you know that it's just a very negative negative ball of frustration so it's very good to see some of these these changes happen it's going to be a slow moving ball for sure but there's definitely gonna be a lot of pushback but it's just good to see it's very refreshing to see these kinds of things for sure all right the last news item I have for today is about um, Rainbow Six Extraction. Um, recently, the Rainbow Six Extraction team, Ubisoft Extraction, just put out a blog post um, with some development news and stuff like that. And unfortunately, but ultimately not to my surprise, at the very least, they were delaying the game until quarter one of 2022. They're saying right now January, but we'll see. Um, this follows a it's a tough decision, but this follows the decision after uh, play testing and uh, people going in uh, testing the product, testing the gameplay, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I personally, uh, not to and I, I speculate, not to put words into Ubisoft's mouth or anything like that. Um, uh, Ubisoft has always been one of those companies that is very ambitious with their projects they they want to go above and beyond and i mean we've seen this with um many of ubisoft creations the assassin's creed franchise for example has always been one of their grand products and some of their games have been more successful than others um but the more recent games uh like assassin's creed origins i remember was a, a decent game but definitely had its flaws um, we definitely have seen a lot of pushback from the community with like it, its change in style in the series and that kind of stuff. Um, Rainbow Six Siege has been, I don't say under development, but it has had many updates and gameplay changes and just like take the game and flip it 180 on itself. And the game has evolved since its inception, and I understand that, but it... it they're always very ambitious with their projects and rainbow six extraction is no different with that any of the tom clancy games especially rainbow six in general they've always been about being tactical being uh, enveloped and 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 immersed in the surroundings and the gameplay um and this is no exception with rainbow six extraction they they want to deliver a a truly triple a experience they want to make sure that the product that they're putting out is worth the price tag and they want to make sure people are actually interested in it um and they've got some very interesting like twists on their game which is really cool um if you remember for those of you that have played uh rainbow six in the past when they released the seaburn unit for rainbow six siege they brought on a game mode uh that was called outbreak and this game mode involved going and destroying this alien um, nest, essentially. Um, there was a, I don't want to say zombie apocalypse, but um, something fell out of the sky. It was this artifact, whatever. And it started transforming people, making people really sick, to, warping their bodies into these fleshy, really just gross, nasty everything. 
and they're really disgusting. Um, and you had to go in to these, it was like, it was like a warehouse. It was a hotel, um, uh, an old farm, stuff like that. And you had to dispose of the, uh, nests that were created from this and secure an objective, um, or rescue X or whatever. And the outbreak game mode was very well done. In my opinion, it was very good. And it is a, a wonderful thing to play. Unfortunately, with Rainbow Six Siege, those events are very short-lived. They don't, they don't live for longer than a, a, maybe a month at most. And they've done several of these game types in the past. Uh, in my opinion, Outbreak was one of the best. Um, there, there have definitely been some, some good ones. But Outbreak was definitely probably one of the, like, that's amazing. Or, like, it definitely has, like, the wow factor involved with it. Um, but following that like I, I feel like that was the grounds for developing rainbow six extraction because it kind of has a very similar experience you're, you're going into these places to have certain objectives maybe it's to rescue someone maybe it's to to find a, an artifact and extract maybe it's to just eliminate hostiles by getting from point a to point b um but essentially it's just run and gun shoot things down move along as you can um it's designed to be cooperative so you can have multiple people multiple people playing um, I think one of the coolest things about the game, in my opinion, is their, um, their, their thoughts of, uh, MIA gameplay or something, I think was what they called it. But it, essentially if you are playing a character and that character goes down and does not get rescued, or if you like fail the mission or something like that, that unit is MIA missing in action for a duration um, and essentially you have to go through these levels or these, these scenarios and you have to play through them and you have the chance of finding them again and bringing them onto your, your unit, which is kind of cool. Um, so it, it gives this, this sense of like, especially for really good operators. Um, and there's a, most of the operators that are in Rainbow Six Siege are part of Rainbow Six Extraction. Um, but it gives a sense of like, you have a high value operator, you don't want to lose them. And if you do lose them, you definitely want to get them back um, and on your team again. Um, this is how you get operators. This is how you lose operators. And it, it kind of creates this like this uh, this loop of of needing to find this person, get this person, protect this person. Um, but it also evolves a lot of replayability with that, too. So it's not just the same thing over and over. Um, but it's definitely one of their like it's a great concept and it's good to see them trying to try this out. But it is very ambitious, um, and the project in general with Rainbow Six Extraction is ambitious. Um, personally, I'm not bummed out by this delay because um, it has it follows another delay that happened. Uh, it was originally set to release like late 2020, um, but they delayed it due to COVID. Um, so you know, obviously, COVID aside, it ruined many of our lives and pushed many projects back um, and a lot of stuff like that. But it's good to see um, these companies kind of take pride in what they do and not just uh, put out something that isn't polished and isn't working and just kind of half-assing their way through a game and delivering something that, you know, maybe was hyped up to begin with, but definitely, like, definitely need more time in the oven and more time in development and polish looking at you uh cyberpunk 2077 and unfortunately like that was a big just 
upset because it was hyped up a lot. Um, and unfortunately, you can't really blame that all on the community surrounding Cyberpunk 2077 either because the developers of Cyberpunk 2077 also a little over-promised on a lot of their, their equipment and a lot of their features and that kind of stuff too, which is unfortunate. But it's great to see, um, and Ubisoft, it's great to see companies like Ubisoft, like big companies, really take a step back, evaluate their progress and their product and what they want to do with it, and really take action to ensure that this product is going to be what they want it to be and be actually proud to put it out and not face the the wrath and the guillotine of this uh, upset community. Um, so yeah, it's, it's set for early release in quarter one of 2022, which is uh, really exciting. I'm actually interested to see how this goes and kind of the, the progress that it sees. Um, but yeah, uh, within their blog, one of their quotes was, Our ambition with Rainbow Six Extraction is to l- deliver a full-fledged AAA experience that changes the way you play and think about cooperative games. Uh, we are embracing the opportunity to take additional time to bring this vision to life in the way it deserves in January of 2022. We are confident this will ensure Rainbow Six Extraction is the immersive, cooperative, and thrilling experience we set out to create and the one you aspire to play. End quote. And uh, that definitely shows, hopefully, just about everyone that they are taking pride in this, that they are willing to work on this, and they realize that they're not ready, which is awesome. Well, that about does it for today's episode of The Babble Box. Um, I'm trying to debate on whether to do, expand this to like an hour and a half long, because I feel like there's just not enough content. Um, hopefully, by the time this episode comes out on Monday... Um, hopefully by the time you're viewing this, I will have set up an email for the Babble Box. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, um, I will make a little addendum um, at the end here. And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, please be sure to email um, and just let me know any feedback that you have will be greatly appreciated and will be taken into consideration. Um, And I greatly appreciate all of you for listening. And I hope you have a fantastic rest of your Monday. Make sure to hydrate get plenty of water, get plenty of sleep, take care of yourselves today, and I will see you next week on episode six of the Babble Box. Have a wonderful day.